Welcome to Fred Buzz the Podcast. My name is Joe McMurray. And I am Aaron Sefchik. And today we have a very special guest, one of my favorite acoustic guitarists, Mr. Don Ross. He's the two-time winner of the International Fingerstyle Guitar Competition, and he's written a lot of incredible music, and he's calling in from Northeastern Canada. Welcome, Don. Howdy doody. How's it going? <laughs> good morning. How are you, sir? I'm good. I'm good. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's northeast to you guys, but it's it's kind of southeast for us, but whatever. doesn't matter. <laughs> I'm on the Atlantic coast anyway. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'll have to make it up to Canada at some point. It's on my bucket list. It seems so close, but that I've put it off. It's great. I mean, I, I travel for a living, basically, and every time I come home, I kind of go, <sighs> you know, it's, it's just a great place to live. I mean, I have favorite places around the world, for sure, that have their cachet, you know, in different ways that Canada doesn't. But overall, I think it's I, it's my favorite place to be, for sure. And I just happen to be somebody who was born here. That's lucky. Yeah. <laughs> what What are some of your favorite places in the world outside of Canada? I always say Italy first. It's mm-hmm. it's just awesome. I was there again six weeks ago or so, and um, uh, actually I've gotten there several times in the last year, which is fine by me. I, I play a lot of northern Italy, so I play around Milano, and I play in Bologna, and I play in uh, Parma, places like that. And then I have a stop that I make right on the Swiss border uh, north of Milano. And uh, so it's a gorgeous place. Uh, the people are so sweet. Um, and of course the, you can't beat the wine, you know, (laughs) it's my, my one bad habit is red wine. So (laughs) I'm, I'm with you. Yeah. I never did anything else. Just red wine. That's it. (laughs) Um, well, where else? So Italy, um, any other favorite, my favorite place to go. I spend a lot of time in Germany. Um, there's just a lot of work there. And I've uh, really grown very fond of the place. I have tons of tons of my best friends are in Germany, so you know I've just gotten to know them so well over the years. I started touring there in 1995, so um, and I go there at least once a year. Sometimes I go there several times a year. Um, I go so often that I actually speak German now. So that's wow. kind of crazy. That's and yeah, that's... I, and I grew up in Quebec, so I speak French. So being multilingual is the best thing about. You know, the, the best thing about my travel experience is that my, I can be understood almost everywhere I go, except like Japan and right. China and places like that. Then I have to just, you know, hope everybody speaks a little bit of English. Yeah. Germany yeah. seems to be a, a good place. Uh, I know a couple of weeks ago we talked to Adam Rafferty and he's based in Austria and he goes over uh, right. over there quite often. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, he's he's so handy to Germany and Germany is like. It's a, it's a country of close to 100 million people, uh, and they're all jammed into this little postage stamp, you know, by North American con, you know, uh, comparison. It's just such a small country. So you can rent a car and drive, you know, for a couple of weeks and just hit all these towns and uh, come home with a pocket full of change and do very well. And it's, uh, it's the kind of place, too, where I find German tours, um, you go over and you work a lot, you sort of do a whole lot of gigs for kind of medium money as opposed to uh in canada i tend to do far fewer for bigger amounts of money at a time so I'm, you know i guess it all kind of works out somehow there's just something about um working that muscle that much you know when you when i go and do these tours that are really intense or i'm playing every night um my playing just gets so good i mean it's, it's like after a while i i everything i think of i can do all of a sudden whereas when the gigs are more uh, further apart I, I find myself okay don you have to practice you have to practice yeah <laughs> yeah it really whenever i go even a, a week without a gig when i get back up it takes a little bit to get it back i love when i ha- i'll try to pack you know three four shows into a you know three four day window on a weekend and it it is every show just gets easier and easier mm-hmm. and if you have if you space them close enough like every few days you don't i quit practicing all of my show repertoire oh yeah i mean at this point seriously uh i play so much between teaching and playing live and recording and and continuing to write um i don't really uh sit down and practice anymore like i used to when i was a, a kid and i had limitless hours uh, free time uh then that's basically all i did was hang out with a couple of buds and play guitar that's 
that was my life. <laughs> um, now there's a bit more responsibility involved, but I still play a lot of guitar, which is great. That is wonderful. I <laughs> don't ever want to stop playing the guitar. No. What's the point? <laughs> right. Right. Well, your practice when you were a kid, were you playing acoustic guitar when you were a kid or were you into rock and roll or anything else? I was into everything. Um, access to an electric guitar wasn't really something that I had. Um, what I did was uh, my older brother and I, uh, we both kind of jumped on this guitar that my sister brought home from boarding school. Uh, my sister's 10 years older than me. And so she was studying at a, a Catholic private school and we were, we were living in Montreal and she was uh, going to school in rural Ontario, not far from where we live in Quebec. Um, and uh, so when I went to visit, it all seemed very exotic, you know, going to a different province and not as many French speaking people. It was all kind of weird anyway. And then one year she, uh, I guess the year she graduated or something, um, the nuns got this big bequest from somebody's will uh, to invest specifically in new instruments for the school orchestra. So my sister played guitar and clarinet in the school orchestra. And, uh, you know, it was the late sixties, early seventies. Uh, I was a big Beatle fan. Um, there were, aside from the clarinet solo and when I'm 64, everything else was pretty much guitar, you know, with the Beatles. And I, I really wanted to learn their tunes. So my older brother and I, uh, my sister got, got to take these two instruments home. She got to take a, a very fourth rate clarinet and about a fifth rate guitar. It was a, I remember it was a Stella. It was probably made in 1348 or something, you know, and it had, <laughs> had action about this high off the fingerboard. And yeah, it was, it was uh, really hard to play, but I, but I developed the left hand of God as a result, you know, right. just pressing down on this thing. And uh, so my older brother was really my first guitar teacher because what he would do is he would, uh, he was already in high school and I was still in, probably middle school or something or primary school. And I was still in primary school. And uh, so he would go and learn all these cool things from his friends. And uh, and he was in a band for a while and he played both guitar and bass. And he would show me, oh, this, this chord's called A minor. And oh, here's a hard one. This is B seventh and blah, blah, blah. So I learned kind of all my basic chords from him. He showed me how to play vibrato and tremolo and how to bend a string and all these cool things. But but I was learning on this really awful guitar. And then he eventually, he had a summer job, and so he bought himself an electric bass. And uh, he became a bass player in a band, which I thought was really awesome because I I really, I was a huge R&B fan growing up. Um, another of my brother's musical loves rubbed off on me. So I was listening to, you know, like really heavy-duty soul music and R&B and Motown and all that kind of stuff. And I, for me, it was all about the bass lines and those, you know, those turned into a huge Bootsy Collins fan and um, Jamerson Jamerson and all those dudes, you know, the guy, <laughs> from, the guy from Sly. Well, um, oh, I can't remember his name now. Larry. Or anyway, great, great bass player. In Sly Larry Graham. Larry Graham. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the very first thing I ever learned on the guitar, I taught myself, well, other than the lessons my brother gave me, he came home one, one day with uh, the single for um, thank you for letting me be myself again by Sly and the family stone. And of course, you know, best two bar song in history, right? So <laughs> I put this thing on and I heard that. And of course, part of it was a bass line. Part of it was just this little guitar punctuation chord thing. And uh, but I, I remember sitting there for hours with the single listening to that riff over and over again. And I eventually figured out how to play it. I figured out how to play like a, a ninth chord. And, you know, on the guitar, which, I mean, I didn't even know what it was. I just knew that those are the notes. So I was starting to pick things up from by ear really early. So um, even though I wasn't really playing electric guitar, I was listening to a lot of electric music. And um, and I just stuck with the acoustic because I, I liked the fact that I could um, entertain myself really easily wherever I went. I could bring the guitar with me. I could sit under a tree in the park and play and um that i noticed um members of the opposite sex thought it was really nice to listen to me play the guitar so <laughs> uh having a portable instrument was very important and uh you know um eventually i did play electric guitar in a few bands uh i wouldn't say i ever became a great lead guitar player but i would play lead guitar in a lot of these bands but um because i was 
because I got so gravi I gravitated so strongly at such a young age towards playing fingerstyle. I didn't know it was called fingerstyle, but I was just playing with my thumb and fingers instead of with a flat pick. Uh, from some such a young age, I never really focused on single note soloing and and learning all the blues riffs and stuff like that. I, I was more into just trying to play as many notes as possible on the instrument at once, kind of thing. Wow! Wow! So many things. Uh, you connected a lot of dots there. Yeah, <laughs> I, I've I've been studying uh, James Jamerson recently just because I have a fascination. I just love that like early Motown music, like early Stevie Wonder, early Marvin Gaye before he got so so I don't know '80s sounding. But uh, <laughs> you, a lot of your tunes like Dracula and Friends and like a million Brazilian civilians, they are based around the bass line with just the, that same guitar punctuation that you were just talking about. Yeah. I found increasingly, especially in the last 20 years or so, a lot of my tunes would um, grow very organically out of a bass riff. Um, and uh, so I'd come up with a, a really cool underlying pattern for the bass line. And then I'd very often, <clears throat> starting with, uh, especially with this piece called um, Lucy Watusi, which I wrote in the late 80s, I guess. <clears throat> um, I started experimenting with the idea of um, kind of a walking funk bass line kind of thing. And then in the spaces between the notes, I would uh, work in what were essentially like horn shots on the trebles of the guitar. And so there was kind of a question and answer going on between the bass and horns bass in my mind, you know. And so that became a question and answer between the basses and trebles on the guitar. Um, and that's still, like you say, Dracula and Friends is another example. Both versions of that song are <clears throat> both written with that in, in, in mind. Again, a bass line with a call and response thing going on. It's wonderful. I think that I've, I've I recently got a book on James Jamerson and then that was had all these transcriptions of his bass lines. And then I realized that that was a little difficult because I'm not a bass player. And so I got like the bass method books and I've been working my way through them. And I think it is because of your songs. I started uh, listening. I started listening to you fairly late in the game, but I don't know if it's been a year now or somebody brought you to my attention. And I was like, I think I told you in an email, I, I pulled up Klimbim was the first song that came up. Right. And I, I think I was listening. My jaw kind of dropped. <laughs> and I was just like, I, I couldn't believe that was coming out of one instrument. I mean, I believe I believed it, but I listened to it like five times on repeat and then went and got my wife. It's like, you've got to hear this. <laughs> and, and then uh, and it's been I've been listening to your music and learning it ever since. Well, and uh, yeah, thank you. Well, that's a that's a cool tune in that um, there were a whole lot of parameters I kind of set for myself when I wrote it. First of all, I was trying to <clears throat> come up with a tuning that um, allowed me to expand the range of the instrument. So I've been I had been experimenting a lot with a seven string guitar and with baritone guitar and stuff like that. But then I thought, well, what's kind of the the coolest sounding wide range tuning I can come up with, where the strings are still at a fairly reasonable tension. So because you know you could tune your bottom string all the way down to an A if you want and kind of achieve what I did in terms of range on that song. But what I did instead is I tuned the bottom string down to a B and I tuned the first string, the high string up a whole tone to F sharp, which is dangerous. Of course, if the string is more than a week old or whatever, <laughs> if you've got a, if you've got a new string on there that it takes an F sharp. Okay. At least for a while. And, um, so I came up with this tuning, this bizarre tuning, I guess it goes to B F sharp, C sharp, F sharp, B F sharp. And, it's all full of fourths and fifths, you know, all these big relationships, intervallic relationships between the strings. And there's one major second in there, but everything else is a fourth and a fifth. And so you're, you're tuning it almost, almost like a six string cello, you know, it's a lot of fifths going on. And uh, it adds a fifth to the range of the instrument open. Uh, and so instead of just going two octaves E to E, you're going two octaves and a fifth from a low B to a high F sharp. And I loved the sound of it. I just thought, wow, this is like I'm playing a guitar and a half, you know, <laughs> in this thing. And then, <clears throat> um, then I realized with that tuning, because it was an add nine tuning, 
playing major chords and minor chords was a snap, you know, with with different two different bar positions up the neck. And um, and then I came up with this this crazy idea to use. Um, it's really complicated to explain what I did in terms of music theory, but essentially it was a modal shift. The, the first part of the piece is in B major and the second part's in D major. And so B major is five sharps and D major is two sharps. And then, um, but you can think of D major as B minor as well, right? It's a relative minor. So mm -hmm. B major and B minor are just two modes of the same tonic, right? So. It's kind of like your ear goes right to it, even though it feels like a transition. And that's what's so cool. That piece is just binary. It just has two sections that kind of go back and forth. But because of the key changes, it always feels like it's going somewhere new, higher, new, higher all the time. And that's what people say they love about it. It's just it feels fresh all the time. And uh, that that to me, that that really turns my crank. You know, I, I love stuff like that. Yeah, it. Also, the stops that you, the mutes that you do in the main melody, mm -hmm. um, something about that when it comes back in, even though it's just that quick moment where you you mute mute the strings, it. Da -da 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 -da. Yes, yeah. that part. I love that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> thanks. Yeah, it was fun to write. I think I wrote it in like two hours, which is really unusual. It's wow. Like, sometimes I slave over a tune for months before it feels finished. But that tune was kind of like, no, there it is. Awesome. That's so nice. <laughs> gonna pull that one out of the air. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't happen that often. Nope. So, so I'll take it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so with the the tuning that high E string to an F sharp, I've broken multiple strings <laughs> doing that. Well, I'll, I'm keeping the Ernie Ball company in, in business, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I uh I went, I think I had a gig one night and I I was this was a few weeks ago and I tuned it up, popped the string. And I was like, ah, I had to drive out to the music store. Blast. And yeah. And he, uh, the guy was telling me maybe if I used a thinner string, it would stretch with that better without breaking. Yeah. You know, I could use a 12 or an 11 or something, but then you sacrifice the tone, especially when you, you tune back down to a regular pitch. Or what Andy McKee and I, Andy McKee and I did a record together about 10 years ago and we did a, a version of that tune on the album as a duet. Mm -hmm. And so he played my part that I would normally play, played the original part. And I came up with a second part, uh, capo to the second fret and standard tuning, playing in eight positions. So it would sound the same key. And uh, But because of the tuning, because it was such a, a pain in the backside to get in tune, um, I think what we always did was we started the second set with it. So we were both kind of regular string changers anyway, because we like new sounding tune uh, strings. And so his strings are always still pretty fresh after the first set. And during the break, it was part of our rituals that we'd retune for Klimbim because we'd always start the second set with it. So that way it was it was gonna break. It was gonna break during the 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 the, the break in the between the sets, and then we'd always have loads of strings backstage in case something happened. But uh, uh that was kind of a way of of solving it. Or playing at the very beginning of a of a show would also solve the problem. But that's that's what I've done in the past is I've, uh, if somebody requests it. Before a show, I say to myself, okay, mental note, play it first, either, you know, the beginning of one of the sets. Yeah. Wow. Just the going through one show, you feel like your strings have taken enough of a beating that you can't tune up. Well, you know, the, for me, um, what I do is I, I tour usually at least with two guitars, sometimes with three, and they're all different. Mm. One's a regular pitch guitar. And these are all Beneteau guitars. I know you've had Mark on the show before. Um, and I've been working with Mark for 22 years now. Anyway, um, I have a regular pitch guitar that he made me in uh, 2017. That's my current sort of regular pitch uh, touring instrument. That's the one I take everywhere. And then uh, I also very often bring the baritone with me, which is he made in 2008. And um, then most recently, uh, I've been starting to tour with my harp guitar, which I guess he made in 2016 or so. But I didn't start touring with it until about two years ago because uh, I had to get my chops back. I learned how to play the harp guitar when I was a kid and then never actually officially owned one. <laughs> I, I borrowed one uh, from a friend of mine who ran a, a, a guitar store in Toronto when I was living in Toronto. And uh, I saw Michael Hedges play back in the 80s. And I, I thought, wait a second, Drago has one of those in his window at the, at the, at the guitar store. And I thought, wouldn't it be cool to learn some of those Michael Hedges tunes? So I... I uh, went over 
And I said, uh, hey, Drago, does anybody play that harp guitar that's in the window? And he says, no, it's just window dressing. It's just to get people in the door. Uh, I said, could I could I rent it? And he said, yeah, go ahead, borrow it, Don. It's funny, you know, he trusted me. So I rented it for three and a half years and I eventually gave it back. Um, but but then I, I didn't I didn't have one in my hands even from that point until about 25 years later, I was in India on tour and I met a harp guitar builder who I just found out has just passed away. But uh, he made the dire harp guitar. He made copies of it. So I um, I uh, borrowed his for a few hours and, and my chops were still there. And I thought, OK, I got to get Mark to make me one. And he uh, deigned to make me one. It was kind of amazing. Um, so so I bring the three instruments. And so I have to have so many strings with me. It's insane. So I always pack about uh, 15 sets of strings before I go on tour. And the baritone and the harp, I don't have to tune. I don't have to restring as often. Um, the baritone, maybe I'll restring every second or third gig. Uh, the regular pitch, it's it's sometimes every show. It depends on how hot and humid it was the night before. You know, if the strings are totally toast. Uh, but it's at least every second gig, just so that I don't run into huge problems with with breaking strings. Also, the the bottom strings, because I tune down to C and B quite often. If they're um, if they're not pretty fresh, they tend to just sound like you know they don't don't yeah. sound like much. Right. <laughs> yeah. Understandable. They, they yeah. kind of deaden, get that duller sound, and you kind of want it to cut to cut through. Yeah, and I'm a I'm a big fan of like fresh uncoated strings i like that sound i mean some people hate new strings and i get it i understand why um they don't like the sound of them whatever you know but uh and some people like the coated strings which i, I could never get used to it just didn't turn my crank and um and i i just like that sound of that that crispy new string sound so um i'm happy to i don't mind changing my strings so it's not not a, not a big pain it's kind of a relaxing thing to do. I like to do oh, it while yeah. I'm watching TV or yeah, I throw on a podcast, music. Yeah, <laughs> no, you like yours. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've become an avid podcaster. <laughs> I mean, as as a listener, I should start my own podcast, but I have you should. I know I should. That'd be great, but I haven't done that yet. I will. <laughs> yeah, on the, it's on the checklist. Yeah, yeah. We can give you some uh, helpful, helpful tips and hints some how to's <laughs> yeah yeah um we you mentioned mark beneteau um I, I can't remember the episode number i'm terrible at that but it was a while ago and for all of our listeners out there if you haven't heard of mark beneteau he's a guitar builder out of canada and he builds some incredible acoustic guitars he sure does yeah i i had the opportunity to play one of them before the episode to prepare myself um, to understand what I was, you know, so that I knew what I was talking about when I spoke with, with Mark. Was that but, one, uh, one of Dustin's guitars? Yes. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. It was a baritone or so not a baritone, a, um, the jumbo. Yeah. Um, with I think walnut back and sides and I, I've still got my, my tailor sitting here at, to this day, I've never quite recovered. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing, you know, like once you play, like. I just had this interesting conversation on Facebook yesterday and today. Um, it wasn't an argument. It was an interesting discussion that was going on. Um, there's a guitarist named Richard Smith who uh, lives in Nashville. And uh, he he just sort of posted, uh, he said, I'm convinced you don't have to pay more than $400 for uh, an electric bass four-string guitar. And I, 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 I took his point, you know, and I, I, I understand. My studio bass was a $400 made in Mexico, Fender, jazz, fretless uh, guitar. And it sounds great. It records beautifully. There's nothing wrong with it. I wouldn't, I don't know if I would take it on tour. I don't know if it's built for it, but it's a great studio instrument. But, you know, I made the point that <clears throat> I got to play bass on my wife's album that she made for this German label. And they had a Zahn bass sitting there, and the guy who makes guitars for Michael Manring. And uh, I was kind of lusting over it, saying, boy, that'd be nice to play. And sure enough, uh, Brooks says, oh, maybe you could play some bass on this tune. There's like, yeah. So I picked up this instrument. It was a fretless Zon, uh, and it had um, really nice electronics, but also the, it had this set of bonus pickup in it. It was like a transducer. And I swear it sounded like a really easy to control upright bass 
through that thing. So I, I used this sort of combo of the more acoustic sound and the electric sound on her album. That, along with a Fazioli grand piano that I also got to play. I mean, it's just oh. these instruments are astoundingly great sounding. And I, I, I said I made the point. I said, well, the Zon bass retails for $4,000. Is it worth it? Yeah, it is. You know, because that it was handmade by somebody um, in his own studio somewhere. He put every little bit of that together. He probably made five bucks an hour to do it, even at $4,000. And the thing is a work of art that sounds incredible. And I mean, with Mark's guitars, uh, Mark has always tried to keep his price as low as he possibly can and still make a living because he wants real players to play them. He wants, you know, actual full-time musicians to play them. And most of us don't have a lot of money. Mm -hmm. So, um, whereas I understand the, the lure for a lot of instrument builders to say, well, I'm going to focus on the dentists and the doctors and the lawyers who do music, uh, on weekends, part-time with their buddies, uh, over a beer. Um, and they want the Brazilian rosewood and they want all the inlay and they want all the bling and all these sort of value added things that turn it into a $25,000 guitar. And that, that and that's a, a way to make a more middle-class living as a luthier. I get it totally. But, um, Mark has somehow bridged the gap between building instruments that are both incredibly well-made and also relatively affordable <laughs> compared to a whole lot of other custom luthiers out there. I mean, um, I think he just raised his price to like seven grand or 7,500, which with considering what you get is, is a bargoon. It really is. Cause you can pay three or 4,000. And again, I'm not slagging anybody, but three or $4,000 for a tailor that is perfectly fine. It's a perfectly usable, functional, okay sounding, uh, factory instrument made with good materials. And there's nothing wrong with it except that it doesn't sound like a Beneteau. <laughs> and there you go. That's kind of it. I mean, I'm, I'm spoiled rotten now. I mean, it, my harp guitar that he made for me, I got invited to the harp guitar gathering. There is such a thing. I always call it the Star Wars convention for harp guitars. But uh, I got invited to the one near New York City a couple of years ago. And uh, this fellow named Greg Miner or Glenn Miner, I always get his first name wrong. Anyway, he's, he's like the world authority on the harp guitar. And uh, he heard Mark's. He says, tell Mark, I've seen them all. I've heard them all. I've played them all. And he's made the best one, you know? So, I mean, the guy makes incredible instruments. And they're really not that expensive, you know? That, that's what blows my mind about them. Yeah, I felt like when I played it, my, my tailor, first of all, seemed very dull. But the, the responsiveness of the Beneteau, when I really dug in it had this incredible growl to it and when i it just seemed like you could play lightly and the sound was just still you had you had so much volume control you had so much it, it was a clear beautiful acoustic sound really yeah, yeah there's a dynamic element to the the instrument it's really hard to describe until you actually play it and, and a lot of people will say, well, that's smoke and mirrors. That's, you know, Don's getting paid by Mark to say that or something. No, it's my honest opinion. I wouldn't play Mark's guitars if I didn't like them. Right. And, um, you know, because the guitars I played before were Loudon guitars mm -hmm. made in Ireland. And they're fantastic instruments. They're lovely for, again, for like a factory instrument. They're just their top drawer. Um, and I played a Loudon for the first 20 years of my career uh, all the time. But... Um, it, th there were a whole lot of uh, behind the scenes problems at the at the company uh, for a while, and I just found it too difficult to communicate with them. And then I just Mark and I started talking, and I thought, wow, wouldn't it be nice to work out a deal with a, a luthier to where we could support each other? And it's just me dealing with just him. Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> no, no corporate structure to have to deal with. And that's how it's been for twenty two years. You know, we just we chat, and he says. Uh, what do you need? And I say, well, can we try this with these woods? And I don't know how to make a guitar. So I, I just tell him, look, I like, I know I like the sound of this with that. And, and you know what I like in terms of body size and uh, neck width and stuff like that. So yeah. go for it. You know? Yeah. It's interesting over the past 
couple of episodes with any one of the number of uh, finger pickers that we've had, you know, in terms of Benito or Cole Clark or Mayton or Larvae, it's kind of interesting to hear all of you guys talk about the different characteristics between each one of these instruments and how they're, they, you know, they bring a certain uh, a character to what, what you guys have. And also what you end up finding too, is that you, 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 you find the link between yourself and um, a builder's instruments. And sometimes they, they, they speak to you in a way that they couldn't possibly speak to you, you know, if it was any other kind of guitar. So that that's what I find. Like you know, I've I've had this conversation with people say who say, "Oh yeah, my Larave. Oh yeah, my Maiden. Oh yeah, my Callings or whatever it is," and they've obviously made a very strong connection with that instrument, and it does what they need it to do, and it's an extension of who they are, and that's the nice thing when you when you can find that that combination of what you do and what somebody else can provide you in terms of an instrument. That's magic, you know. Yeah, we just had, uh, like I said, um, we had a conversation with Matt Thomas, uh, and he had used um, Maiden guitars for, he said, over a decade, um, just kind of emulating what Tommy was doing. Um, and then just kind of got to a point where he was kind of looking for his own sound and kind of looking for something that was going on in his head and trying to recreate that with different mics within the within the cavity of the guitar, especially with a harp guitar, because it, you know, it extends up further. So getting all those resonances and making sure that it comes true because what he was talking about, you know, within the bedroom or within a, a studio environment, you kind of get this, um, this closeness with the guitar. It sounds different. You, you, you feel a little bit more uh, one with it versus going out on a stage and the PA and the room, because it's so large, you, kind of lose a lot of that intimacy um, so mm -hmm. it's kind of interesting how he was talking about you know the different uh, combinations of mics and how to change the sound of um, how acoustic guitar has changed really over the past couple of decades oh yeah it's night and day i mean when i started touring all pickups sounded equally horrifically bad you know? so <laughs> so it was uh kind of amazing we all just got used to accepting well, that's what an acoustic guitar sounds like plugged in. And um, uh, and very often people were just settling for something that was loud. You know, they figured, well, loud is good, you know. And I, I still see it happening to a certain extent where um, I'm surprised, for example, and again, I hope people don't get insulted by this, but I'm surprised when I see people like rely on a, on a magnetic pickup in their guitar and kind of nothing else. Um, I, I, I taught at a at a guitar gathering uh, two or three years ago. And one by one, people were going up at the open stage and playing, and, and I couldn't believe how many of them were using, I mean, good magnetic pickups, you know, but still kind of relying on that sound, and they all sounded the same. And I thought, they all sound the same, and none of them sounds like an acoustic guitar. They all sound like cheap electrics kind of thing. I mean, that, that, that kind of pickup in league with other sources, yeah absolutely makes all kinds of sense you know because you can boost bottom end with it you can drive effects with it all that kind of stuff but relying on it especially that horrible sound of a magnetic pickup on a b string ugh, it's just a, oh it's that sound <laughs> like what what is that well why do people think that's okay so so that sound to me is kind of like the the 2010s version of the the bad sort of takamine pickup sound that everybody was using in the 80s and 90s Thank goodness, you know, like in the last 15, 20 years, um, companies like K&K &K and stuff like that have come along and just like revolutionized what you can get plugged in so, off the stage. So you, with the magnetic pickups, are you referring to the under saddle piezo? No, the one, the ones in the sound hole. Like, sound, uh, okay. like I use a sound hole magnetic pickup in my, in my um, baritone guitar only as one of the sources. I, I, I have three sources in there. So two of them are the K&K. &K. So K&K &K makes a... Uh, a thing called the quantum trinity and so it's a combination of a, a piezo transducer trio of pickups that are on the bridge plate not not under the saddle but they, they're on the bridge plate so they sound much more acoustic than you would normally get from a, a transducer and then a condenser mic in the sound hole and pointed very carefully between the second and third strings and that combination alone sounds amazing through their preamp you know that their proprietary preamp and stuff the, the little tiny one no i use the big one the, the quantum blender 
Okay. I mean, it's still not that big. People complain about the size, but it's, it's you know, oops, crash. It's mm -hmm. only, you know, yay big. It's like, I don't know, eight inches long and four inches wide or something. It's just a small thing. I, I lug three of those around with me on the on the road, and I, I don't mm -hmm. mind. But anyway, um, uh, so that through the Quantum Blender just sounds terrific. And then, uh, you know, much more acoustic sounding than anything I've ever heard. Then in the baritone, I also use an old, I have an old... Um, I think it's called an M1. It's a LR Bags uh, magnetic pickup. And it, it was the one that was sort of touted as having a bit of a microphonic kind of quality to it. And it's true. It's actually a pretty nice sound that you get out of that thing just on its own because it, it sort of has this microphone built into it somehow. I don't know how they do it. Anyway, but what I do with the magnetic is I, I run it through my mixer with all the EQ, uh, all the high-end EQ rolled right off. So that I don't, and I, I've also sunk the pole pieces under the the plain string so that you don't get that B string sound, because uh, the B string is the first string on a baritone, and then so I just use it really to to boost the bottom end, and I get this kind of larger than life bottom end hum that's not honky, you know, it's just it's just this lovely sound. It's a very present, like Paul McCartney's bass, you know, it's kind of there, you know, <laughs> and then. Um, and then I use the 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 K and K blended signal to make the very acoustic sound that I want. So I, and then I end up with this lovely huge sound out of the out of the baritone. I find on my on my regular pitch guitar I don't really need a uh, magnetic. I know a lot of people like using them because they they use them as their effect driver, and I get it. So I actually just ordered the K and K Trinity. Um, I should. He should get it into the shop today or tomorrow. And oh, lucky you! That's great. Because I've, I've had the just the undersaddled piezo pickups that came on this Taylor, and yeah, I I played a show I think last weekend, and I was on stage, and it was just miserable. I couldn't get. <laughs> I was yeah. quacky, and I was like, I practiced all week. I mean, I've been practicing this stuff, you know, thousands of hours, and I can't get it to sound good on stage and it's yeah, just, welcome to the 80s i was just gonna yeah. say welcome to the 80s that's hilarious <laughs> but i'm excited i just i just i've been researching all week on this stuff and rereading my notes from past guests and i i called dustin furlough that one of our past guests and yeah i'd ordered the trinity so I'm good good yeah really it's what all the pros use now like andy uses it i use it jimmy wallstein uses it brooke miller uses it uh callum graham uh, everybody uh like and we all we all use it not because it's cool we use it because we've heard the other ones and then you hear this and you go well why don't i want that you know yeah. especially if you're playing all the time i mean a lot of people balk at the price yeah i mean a hundred dollar under the saddle pickup is cheaper than a 700 dollar system that has a proprietary preamp and all that kind of stuff absolutely but you know it's like anything else you get what you pay for usually i mean uh, it's not a smoke and mirrors thing. It's a quality thing. It really sounds like more than seven times better than a hundred dollar pickup. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if you're going to spend hundreds of hours working on something like hundreds of dollars to make it sound as good as it sounds in your bedroom is worth it to me. Well, also, you know, there's a logic to it as well. I always tell people, um, spend a little less on your guitar and more on gear, you know, because a, a lot of people who save and save and save and save and save and they buy the ultimate guitar that they've always wanted. Okay, that's that's nice, but you know, are you going to play live? Yes, yes, I'm going to play live. And then they then they don't want to pay anything for pickups and so they just think that, that that's kind of unnecessary, uh, frilly nonsense, and it's just not. You know, I mean, if you're going to play live, you're going to be a even semi-pro, you know, if you're just going to do it occasionally. But especially if you're going to be touring, you need gear that sounds good, that's going to take a beating and all that kind of stuff. And um, uh, so most most musicians I know, unless they have really special endorsement deals with guitar manufacturers or whatever, or, or luthiers where they, they promise they'll always play their instruments on stage, most players don't bring their best guitar on the road. You know, they might have a $10,000 guitar sitting at home, but they might bring their $2,000 touring guitar on stage with them and they put really good pickups in it. And then they get a, a, you know, a killer sound on stage with an okay guitar, you know, and you can do that. I have, I have um, a deal with a, a builder in Germany who builds carbon fiber instruments. 
And I, I the only reason I ever was even interested was because, um, I, I mean, all the carbon fiber guitars I'd ever heard before this one sounded like they were made of plastic. But um, I was in Hamburg at the Guitar Festival and uh, people were saying, you got to meet this guy. He makes this incredible carbon fiber guitar. And I said, yeah, all right, whatever. So I sort of reluctantly, excuse me, reluctantly let myself get dragged over. And first of all, the guitars were stunning to look at. I thought, wow, it almost looks like a Greenfield guitar made out of carbon fiber. And then, um, then sure enough, I picked it up and it sounded incredible acoustically. And then, uh, so he made me one and I put a K and K in it and I tour with it sometimes. And people are always saying that guitar sounds amazing. What kind of black wood is that, that it's made out of? So, uh, <laughs> it's pretty fascinating, uh, how good that technology has gotten with a few you know very very um anal retentive luthiers out there who make their own carbon fiber um and also the fact that you can put um you know acoustically it sounds really good it doesn't sound like a, as good as good wooden guitar but it sounds really good but with a good pickup system in it you really can't tell the difference it sounds that good yeah. and you can it it doesn't um the Sorry. wood does, i guess if you're uh Using a carbon fiber carbon fiber instrument, it doesn't go through the the changes that happen with the weather. No, like it doesn't use it as a canoe bend. paddle. Yeah, you use it as a canoe paddle. <laughs> <laughs> but you don't have to adjust the action. You don't have to worry about it getting hot or cold. Correct. You know the the action probably is adjustable. You know depending on how you want it in terms of string height height and stuff like that. But no, it's it's impervious to all the changes in humidity and stuff like that. I'm really lucky in that I live right on the ocean and we've got high humidity twelve months of the year here and it doesn't get that cold here. So even in the winter, even in the coldest winter day, it's still pretty humid here. Um, and then uh, throughout the summer, it's always high humidity. So my guitars are fine. They're they're doing fine. You don't have to do anything. To worry about it. but it, when i used to live in ontario and quebec yeah i mean the, the winter everything just goes, you know so you have to be so careful about humidification and stuff but with a carbon fiber guitar yeah you can you can practically shoot a gun at it and it's fine you know? <laughs> it's crazy be great for taking backpacking travel exactly that's what a lot of people do with them there's um another little guitar that uh, this company in china well it's an american guy who runs his company out of china they're called um journey guitars and um, they sent me one. It's made of carbon fiber, and it's kind of unbelievable. Uh, it, it folds up into this tiny little whoops, this tiny little bag that can fit in the overhead, no problem. Or it could probably even fit under the seat. That's crazy. Anyway, and uh, the neck is detachable from the guitar and everything else. And um, then when you want to play, you just put the neck back on, and amazingly, it's usually still in tune. <laughs> wow. That's yeah. And so that's a that's a travel carbon fiber guitar, which is kind of remarkable. And they, you know, they sound pretty darn good uh, acoustically. They don't sound like a big full body wooden guitar, but for a travel instrument or a, like a backpacking instrument, amazing. And it has a pretty good pickup in it. You put you plug it in, it sounds pretty okay. Wow. <laughs> okay, so I've got a question with traveling. Yeah. I'm playing for a wedding ceremony in Vail, Colorado next weekend, nice. and I'm. I've been too scared. I've never traveled by plane with my good guitar. And so I'm planning on not. I'm going to borrow somebody's instrument and plug in a, a sound hole pickup because I don't really know what else to do. But how how does it work traveling with an acoustic guitar nowadays? Uh, well, flying. You're, talk, you're talking to somebody. You're talking to somebody who's taken thousands of airplanes in his life mm -hmm. and with a lot of different guitars. I have had a few bad experiences and that, so that's par for the course it's a it's a it's a percentage game right so um you just never know who's going to handle your instrument um you don't know what the airlines policies are very often now in the states there's all kinds of legislation now that says that they're supposed to let you bring your guitar into the cabin with you um whether or not in practice that actually happens is always a crapshoot and it's the same in Canada. Like Air Canada has a, a policy since about 2015 where they say that they'll let you bring an instrument into the cabin provided there's room. <laughs> so they always there's always a proviso in there that you know they, they can back out if they want. Yeah. So what I've decided to do, and this works now all the time, I've had no issues, um, 
I have for my guitar that has to get to the gig, my regular pitch Benito, I bought myself um, one of those Gator hard shell gig bag uh, cases. I think it's called the, is it called the GL? I think it's called a GL. And they make them in various sizes for various instruments. They make a mandolin one, they make a banjo one, they make an electric guitar version, they make all these different acoustic guitar size versions. So I got a jumbo one. They, they're 150 bucks, and it's the best, the best investment you'll make to protect your instrument on the road. So the it's made out of really hard foam, and the uh, it's just it really is just as protective as a hard shell case. I don't say, you, know, you can stand on it, you can throw it down the stairs. The guitar's okay. So um, and it weighs next to nothing. So sometimes when they see me coming onto an airplane, especially if I'm if I get an upgrade to business class or something. They'll very often say, oh, yes, Mr. Ross, we'll put that in the closet for you. Or, or, But it also fits in the overhead in most airplanes. But the only one I've found it doesn't fit into is the 767. But kind of everything else, it works. And uh, if, as long as it's like an Airbus or, a, or a, one of the larger Boeing planes or something. If it's a little regional jet, then you know, you're toast. You can't get it on there. It's just not going to happen. So then what I do, and this is the, the important part, is that that guitar, if, even if it's the only guitar I'm traveling with, I always get it gate checked. So a lot of people don't know that that's an option. So what gate checking involves is you go to check in at the, you know, you talk to a human being, you don't just go to the machine and you say, hi, I wanna gate check my guitar. And so what they do is they put a special uh, tag on it that has your routing on it, if you're gonna connect or if you're gonna, whatever your final destination is. And then within North America, anyway, this is always the case. Um, they say, "Okay, fine, great. Take that to the to the gate when you when you go to your plane." So you go to gate twenty six or whatever, and you you explain to them this is gate checked, and they say, "Great, leave it at the end of the jetway." And then what happens is you walk down to the plane, you put it down there with all the strollers and you know other stuff that people have left there, and then an, a human being comes and takes it by hand, and puts it in a special part of the hold. And then when you arrive. Uh, you you just come out the door of the airplane. You wait at the end of the jetway, the same place you dropped it off, and then a human, a different human being, <laughs> comes up with your guitar in his or her hand and says, "Here you go. Have a good day." And then I always check it anyway to make sure that they didn't, you know, decide to use it for target practice. But um, I've never had a problem doing that okay. at all. And uh, then my other two guitars, I put in really good cases and I check them in and I make sure they're well padded and. My harp guitar goes in a, a big 40-pound uh, keyboard case, but Mark actually custom padded it inside. So the, the guitar, you take it and just sort of goes, just, and there's not, it can't budge. Oops, I keep doing that. I talk with my hands. I'm a Quebecer. Sorry. Um, uh, it can't budge. So it's it's kind of amazing. That is really helpful. I've, mm -hmm. I've, I'm just terrified because I, I brought a sitar back from India a few years ago. And the airlines cracked the gourd of it. Yeah, that's, and, that's the worst, getting your gourd cracked. Oh, that was terrible. <laughs> I mean, well, and it was wrapped in, like, bubble wrap, wrapped in a soft case into a hard case and had fragile written all over it. Away, it's, yeah. They still hurt it. I've had well, it repaired, I, I, but... I will say, I will, I will say I've had guitars damaged four times. I've counted it finally. I figured four times in 30 years of touring. Mm -hmm. So... Okay, almost every 10 years, something bad happens to one of my guitars. And it's too bad when it happens. Poor Mark, you know, he, sa he, says, uh, he says, yeah, Don, he says, I, I live to do repairs on your guitars. But he's had to fix, he had to fix one of my baritones years ago. One of the airlines punched a big hole in the lower belt. I don't know how they did it. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, the, the worst thing was in 2016, I think I was coming back from Germany. And I just had one guitar with me in a, in a carbon fiber case. And I normally uh, gate checked it or brought it on the plane with me. And for whatever reason, United Airlines in Munich would not let me carry it on. And I said, but this is my main, oh, no, 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 we don't have room today. And I'm like, really? And they said, no, it's okay. Just put it in special handling. You know, we'll treat it like a Ming vase or whatever. Well, my Ming vase when I got home was just torn to shreds. It was just, it looked like they, the case was fine. So my, my only guess is that they must have dropped the guitar from the top of Mount Everest or something. The, the top of some big pile of luggage and it fell on its lower bout 
and it doesn't matter what kind of case it's in you know gravity cannot be denied and uh so uh there were four big cracks along the grain on the front and one across the grain like against against the wow. grain yeah it really got curse smashed so um i talked to the airline I, air canada was the ticketing airline I, I the last little puddle jumper flight i took was to toronto from chicago and uh i explained to the guy and he said well he says uh yeah make a file a claim and i but the big thing is if anything ever happens to your instrument i figured it out put it on twitter Twitter's Twitter really works for that, and you tag uh, the airline and uh, the TSA and whoever else. You, so that's what I did. I tagged United Air Canada and the TSA, and, and the Canadian version of the TSA, and uh, they all got back to me in minutes, <laughs> literally. Wow. And uh, Air Canada finally, they were getting such a, a, a Twitter storm about it. Apparently, it got shared ten thousand times like, within minutes or something because um, that kind of thing really bugs people online sure enough uh, they wrote me and they said uh, get an estimate and we'll pay for the repair and that was extraordinary because normally they have a limitation you know like 1500 bucks or something that they'll but uh, Mark said uh, no it'll cost about $3,000 you're going to have to rebuild the guitar basically yeah. and uh, they paid it that's wonderful that they yeah, amazing made it right yeah they did, they did. so I mean I've been a faithful customer to them over the years, but they've screwed up a few times and they've tried to do something to make it better. That's good. Yeah. And that is where we're going to end it for this week. Join us as usual next Thursday for part two with fingerstyle guitarist Don Ross. Make sure if you haven't already to hit that subscribe button. Head on over to YouTube and check out the Fret Buzz the Podcast YouTube channel and subscribe there as well. And that brings us to the end of another episode of Fret Buzz the Podcast. Join us next Thursday for part two with fingerstyle guitarist Don Ross on Fret Buzz the Podcast. <laughs>